Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Jeffrey Rissman, Senior Director for Industry at Energy Innovation and the author of the new book, Zero Carbon Industry, which comes out this week. In today's conversation, Jeff will give us a broad overview of the industrial sector, which accounts for about a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. We'll talk about the options that are available to get to net zero emissions, particularly in the iron and steel, chemicals, and cement industries. If you don't know much about the industrial sector, or even if you do, today's episode will get you up to speed on how important they are and how technology and policy can help move them towards net zero emissions. Stay with us. Okay, Jeff Rissman from Energy Innovation, welcome to Resources Radio and congratulations on your new book, Zero Carbon Industry. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so so Jeff, we're going to talk about this book today and we've actually had you on the podcast before, uh, but you spoke with my colleague, Kristen Hayes, and it was almost four years ago that you were on the podcast. Uh, so it would be great if you could remind our listeners how you got interested working on environmental issues, whether that inspiration came at an early stage in life or later in your career. Absolutely. Yeah, and I do remember um, being on the podcast four years ago to talk about industry. But um, before that, um, I've always been interested in solving large important problems facing society and humanity and the world and i enjoy problems that are have uh, the nexus of science and policy science and policy or politics understanding how people can work together to solve these challenges we're facing and finding win-win solutions i really started pursuing environmental issues seriously in graduate school where i did uh, a dual masters one in um city and urban planning, where I focused on green planning and green cities and uh, good urban design, and one in environmental science and engineering. So I would have the, the real technical background, and that focused on air quality and emissions and greenhouse gases. And then um, I started with energy innovation. I, I helped uh, found the uh, organization along with Hal Harvey, who was our CEO at the time. Uh, so I think. Um, it was a gradual process of finding where where the greatest challenges uh, facing um, society are and where I felt like I could be the most effective in helping to address them. That's great. And, and I should note you uh, went to graduate school just down the road from uh, where I grew up and where I went to graduate school. You're a UNC alum and I'm a Duke alum, but we won't argue about basketball today. Uh, it'll have to be another time. <laughs> so Jeff, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about your new book. Uh, again, the book is called Zero Carbon Industry. Uh, people can uh, get a link to it in the show notes and check it out. The book is organized around the three largest greenhouse gas emitting industries, uh, iron and steel, chemicals, and cement and concrete. Um, we're going to dive into each of those sectors in our conversation. But first, it'd be great if you could give us a little bit of big picture background on the industrial sector writ large. For example, like how do we define the industrial sector? How significant is it to the global economy? And also how significant is it in terms of its emissions footprint? Sure. So the, um, the industrial sector, um, as I see it, and, and as, in, as in this book, Zero Carbon Industry, um, which you can find out more at zerocarbonindustry.com, by the way. The industry sector is um, essentially 
the set of businesses that make all of the stuff that we use every day. That's materials like cement and concrete, paper and plastic, uh, as well as uh, parts and components and finished goods, whether it's personal electronics or paperback books or any other thing that you're going to be putting in your hands or, or buildings you live in or um, the vehicles you, you ride in. So it's enormously important to human society. Um, it's also enormously important for emissions. So globally, um, the industrial sector is responsible for about a third of human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. That includes the uh, emissions from electricity purchased by industry. If you exclude that, then the direct emissions from industry are about a quarter uh, of all human-caused emissions, which is still enormous. So it's clear that there's no way we can solve the climate crisis without addressing industrial emissions. Industry is also a key source of high-quality jobs. Um, the, it's a large share of the economy of numerous countries. Uh, it varies by country, of course, but um, you know, with, with China, for example, being a very large share, um, more than half, I believe, and um, depending on how it's measured. And, uh, and, so, and it's also a technological uh, leader. So industrial firms are often the ones that are doing research and development and pioneering new technologies and manufacturing processes um, and, and the technologies that incor are incorporated into their products. Industry is going to be the one manufacturing all the batteries and all the electric vehicles, all the solar panels, all the wind turbines, every technology we need in order to decarbonize the economy and land on a clean, prosperous, and sustainable future. So from every angle, uh, from technology to environment to jobs to emissions, industry is, is really central. That's a great starting point. Um, so as I mentioned, we're going to focus on three particular sectors, and I'd love for us to dive right in and talk about iron and steel first. Can you tell us a little bit about iron and steel? Um, and I think our audience will be particularly interested in like, what are the actual physical processes that are used to manufacture these materials? And then what are some of the most promising pathways uh, technologically uh, for getting to net zero iron and steel in a way that is economically viable? Absolutely. Iron and steel is globally the industry that has the greatest emissions. I, I'll break down the, the processes a little bit, um, but first I'll note that steel is a very important material because it is so strong and so versatile um, and also made from iron ore, which is broadly distributed globally, um, so it's not um, hard to get or concentrated like rare earth minerals. So it's used everywhere and is crucial in buildings and vehicles and all kinds of products. Um, Iron and steel are chemically similar. I, I mean, iron is an element, and steel is iron with some uh, carbon added to it for strength. Um, overwhelmingly, these days, we use steel. Iron is just 1% or 2% of the production, but the materials are so similar that we can speak of them as uh, together. I'll talk about steel, and it can come from um, either recycled steel or secondary steel or primary steel, which means from iron ore. 
Um, secondary steel is when you collect scrap steel from, um, you know, uh, cars, uh, old, old demolished cars or buildings, um, or even recycled uh, steel cans and things, and uh, melt it down in uh, a machine called an electric arc furnace, uses electricity to form it into new steel. Um, and then primary steel is made in a blast furnace, uh, a tall machine that um, takes iron ore, which is a type of, of rock, uh, hematite or magnetite, that has uh, iron atoms bound to oxygen atoms. And the heat and chemicals uh, from coal and coke, coke is a carbon-based fuel made from coal, uh, are added to the blast furnace, and they extract the oxygen atoms and leave metallic iron uh, behind, and um, that goes on into another step called a basic oxygen furnace and, and forms steel. Uh, so the reason um, it has such high emissions uh, is from the primary steel making, from this process I described with the blast furnace, uh, because of that combustion of coal and coke. So moving now on to uh, decarbonizing, how to get clean steel. Well, we could recycle more. Um, that's pretty clean. The Electric arc furnaces do have a little bit of emissions. They have some natural gas burners around the edges, though those aren't strictly necessary, and you could run it without them. Um, on average today, they produce 7% as much emissions as primary steel. Um, but the real problem there is um, you run out of scrap steel to recycle. Uh, recycling rates are already high in many countries like the United States, uh, where much of the steel is not from municipal solid waste, it's from buildings, vehicles, or even what's called forming and fabrication scrap, which is in the steel plants, the little bits and pieces that are left over get thrown back and, and recycled. Um, and so uh, even if you uh, bumped up the recycling rate further, there's a limit. You can't recycle more than 100% of the scrap and that wouldn't be nearly enough to satisfy the demand for steel. So we need a way to decarbonize primary steel making. The foremost technology to do that is called hydrogen direct reduced iron, uh, foremost in the sense of most technologically mature. This is where you take clean hydrogen, uh, typically made by taking uh, renewable electricity and splitting water into oxygen and hydrogen, and then using hydrogen instead of uh, coal and coke to uh, chemically reduce, meaning remove the oxygen atoms from that iron ore. Um, this is also done at lower temperatures, uh, so you save some energy there. Um, and then the resulting product, which is called direct reduced iron, goes into an electric arc furnace and is turned into steel. The... Um, the less technologically mature routes are electrolysis, meaning taking electricity and using it to split those oxygen atoms off without involving hydrogen. That, that can be done um, at high temperatures using molten oxide electrolysis or in a water-based or aqueous solution, aqueous electrolysis. Uh, my book, Zero Carbon Industry, uh, talks about each of these and the efficiency and some of the technological considerations and some of the companies that are pioneering these technologies. That's great. And clearly, you know, we're just kind of scratching the surface here on, on all sorts of complex processes and, and complex issues. Um, and, and people sh certainly should check out the book to, to go into more depth. Um, 
But because we're just kind of scratching the surface here, uh, let's scratch the surface on another sector, uh, which is the chemical sector. Uh, so similar question to iron and steel. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how bulk chemicals are manufactured, where the emissions come from? And then again, what are some of the most promising pathways for economically transitioning to net zero chemicals? Absolutely. So the chemicals industry um, produces a lot of the products um, that are familiar, like plastics being one of the main outputs, the plastic resins that go on to be formed into various plastic packaging, plastic parts, pipes, goods, um, as well as uh, fertilizer. They produce ammonia that goes on to be made into fertilizer, which is used um, extensively, and miscellaneous other products like adhesives and paints and coatings and personal care products like uh, soaps and detergents and so on and so on. The chemicals industry, some of its energy use is for producing um, certain uh, non-petrochemicals, let's say um, purified gases like pure oxygen, which is taken from the atmosphere. But the vast majority of the chemicals industry's energy use is producing a set of chemicals uh, that we would call ammonia and petrochemicals. Um, they use fossil fuels today to make these chemicals. Um, fossil fuels that are used to form uh, products are called feedstocks or feedstock fossil fuels, as opposed to fossil fuels that are burned for heat uh, or combusted. Um, the main in the United States, uh, natural gas, for example, goes through a process called steam methane reforming, where they um, extract the carbon from natural gas, which is largely methane or CH4. Uh, that carbon becomes carbon dioxide and is emitted, and then the remaining hydrogen is, is uh, uh, attached to nitrogen to make ammonia. And ammonia is a precursor to fertilizers. So um, similarly for other petrochemicals like methanol and, and, and um, ethylene and propylene, which are predecessors to plastics, um, they come from petroleum. That's why they're called petrochemicals. And then plastic is a petrochemical product. Um, so the challenge here is to, uh, so there's heat, right? So there's heat that drives these chemical reactions. And the best way to decarbonize that is to supply the heat with zero carbon electricity. The unique thing about the chemicals industry is actually trying to decarbonize the feedstocks in addition to the heat. Um, and that matters because um, even if uh, even if you're not burning those feedstocks, there was emissions when they were produced. For example, when you extracted natural gas from the ground, there's methane that leaks from the um, wellheads of those gas wells. Um, or similar for coal, say, there's coal bed methane that leaks when you mine the coal. Then there are what's called process emissions. There are more carbon atoms in the feedstocks than there are in the output products like fertilizers and plastics. So the difference in carbon atoms ends up getting emitted along the way uh, in what we would call CO2 process emissions. Um, and then finally, some of those products are not permanent secure stores of carbon. Um, some fertilizers contain carbon, uh, urea-based fertilizers, and they will volatilize after they're applied to a field and spread out in the environment. The carbon doesn't stay uh, trapped. Um, plastics can last longer, but about a quarter of all end-of-life plastics are incinerated today, 
and that share is expected to rise to 50% by 2050, which of course releases the carbon in them, um, and, uh, and so on. So um, this isn't a secure way of storing carbon, and so we need to decarbonize the feedstocks that we make uh, these products out of. Uh, the, the chemicals industry is a little complicated. Um, I will say that um, the uh, main routes involve clean hydrogen. Um, you can use uh, hydrogen made from renewable electricity, like I mentioned before, for steel um, to make uh, ammonia. Uh, that's straightforward because it doesn't contain carbon. And um, it's the same process as you would get with steam methane reforming, which produces hydrogen. You just obtain the hydrogen a different way, and from that point on, it's the same. Um, other petrochemicals are a little trickier. You can form them from hydrogen and combine them with captured carbon from another process, um, or uh, and you can do make methanol that way and make other chemicals from methanol. Uh, or you can use biomass if, or bioenergy if it's sustainably grown and doesn't uh, result in unfavorable land use changes like deforestation. Um, and then there's recycling. So you can do some amount of recycling, recycled chemicals to get feedstocks out of, uh, out of products again. So, so those would be the main uh, ways to produce zero carbon feedstocks. That's great. Let's jump now to the third industrial sector that your book focuses on, cement and concrete. So similar question. Give us a sense of how they're manufactured, where the emissions come from, and then what some of the most promising pathways might be for decarbonization. Absolutely. So concrete is this um, compound material. It's basically a mixture of aggregate, which is sand and crushed rock, that is bound together with cement, which is the glue that um, holds all this stuff uh, together and makes it a solid. Um, the aggregate is not the emissions-intense part of concrete. It doesn't require that much energy, and you can crush rock using electricity. So the challenging part is the cement, the binder. Um, today that's made by taking limestone, which is calcium carbonate rock, and breaking it down chemically at high temperatures in a, a kiln, uh, and also a precalciner, a machine that begins the process before the materials move into the kiln. Um, and it has emissions of carbon dioxide, CO2, of two types. One is from burning fossil fuels to heat the kiln. Today, it's mostly coal that's burned to heat cement kilns. And that's responsible for about 40% or a little more of the CO2 emissions. Carbon dioxide comes out of the carbonate rocks, calcium carbonate, leaving lime, which goes on to make clinker the main ingredient in cement, and CO2. And the CO2 escapes from the kiln today and, and enters the atmosphere. So the key to decarbonizing the cement and concrete industry is to decarbonize cement making, uh, the kiln uh, heat you can provide electrically. There's a company, Cementa, that has demonstrated you can do this uh, at small scale, um, but, um, but it is something that uh, can be done using various electrical heating technologies. For the uh, process emissions, um, you can either uh, capture them using carbon capture. Now, I think there's 
only narrow niches for carbon capture because generally, especially if you're using it for fossil fuel combustion, it's better to avoid burning the fossil fuels instead. But for capturing emissions from carbonate rock, uh, there are fewer good options, and it's one of these places where carbon capture is most attractive. There's also alternative cement chemistries uh, that have fewer or potentially no emissions, although then there are hurdles to be overcome in approvals of the technology for use in buildings and infrastructure. It has to be safe, and ideally it would protect the steel reinforcements inside and reinforce concrete from corrosion. Uh, standard concrete does that, but um, carbon-infused concrete and certain alternative chemistries do not necessarily provide a barrier against corroding the steel reinforcements inside. So there are certain challenges, um, but there are clear technological pathways forward, and that's even before we reach options like material efficiency, which can lower the need for cement and for concrete. Right. Those are all um, really good explanations and, and very interesting alternatives. Let's move away from the specific industries now and talk about some cross-cutting technologies that you focus on in the book. You just talked about carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, you highlight other technologies that might be useful uh, for a range of applications across multiple industries. And I know, you know, again, we could talk about this for hours, but uh, it would be great if you could give us kind of the high-level overview of what some of these technologies might look like. Sure. Um, I'll give a quick overview and you know, if your listeners want more, they can go to zerocarbonindustry.com and uh, grab the book there. There's actually a 20% off discount code for your listeners there. Uh, it'll have much more on each of these. But um, in the there are cross-cutting technologies that are cross-cutting, meaning they're going to be useful for uh, decarbonizing many different industrial processes, not just the cement chemicals uh, and steel, but also uh, wood products and textiles and food making and manufacturing of vehicles and all the rest. Um, my book puts front and center in this section energy efficiency uh, and then material efficiency, material substitution, and circular economy, because the only technology that's cheaper than making something more cleanly is making less of it not needing to use as much material or energy to make it. Um, and in terms of energy efficiency, um, I'll have to keep this very brief, but it can be done at the level of products, at the level of entire industrial facilities, or even at decisions broader than that, like how to design products and how to arrange supply chains. For material efficiency, you can often design goods in ways that provide equal or better services to the end user while using less material, less waste. Um, there are plenty of examples. One quick one is that today buildings are built like in poured concrete with these molds made of wood boards that have these sharp angles. And often the bit sticking out in the corner there isn't load-bearing. It isn't uh, needed to support the building's weight. In fact, it can add weight because it's excess material and means you have to have a heavier, a bulkier foundation and such. If you use curved fabric molds uh, and similar techniques, you can place the concrete only where you actually need it for structural strength, which makes the building lighter so you can use uh, less um, 
less material there too, and it can make the building more pleasant because it can be a lighter, uh, airier feel uh, for occupants. Um, circular economy is about longevity of products and, and reusing the products and materials. Um, the other key technologies that I haven't already mentioned are electrification and then use of hydrogen and other renewable fuels. Electrification is um, the, I think, the most important and efficient way to get industrial um, energy use and specifically industrial heat. About 85% of the fossil fuels combusted in industrial facilities, not feedstocks, but the fuels that are combusted, uh, go toward producing heat. And so this chapter highlights how you can get that heat through a variety of technologies like heat pumps, electrical resistance, electric arcs and plasma torches, uh, microwave heating, and, and more. Uh, and lastly, the hydrogen and other renewable fuels um, covers the best how to form uh, clean hydrogen and hydrogen-derived clean fuels, how uh, to transport them, and how they're best used to decarbonize industry. That's great. So, Jeff, I want to ask you one last question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is, of course, about policy. Uh, policy will play an enormous role in shaping the incentives that the industrial sector faces and that consumers face. So um, in the short amount of time we have left, and I know this is un unfair uh, to ask you to do it so briefly, uh, but what do you see as the role of policymakers and what are some of the most effective incentives that you think might be particularly well suited for the industrial sector? Sure. So I think policy is critical to driving adoption of cleaner technologies on a faster time scale and making it so that these investments by industry are profitable and help create jobs and secure the technological leadership um, for the industries that invest in them. This is already crucially important for the environment and this is only going to become more and more important for industrial firms as the years go on, and there's increasing demand for cleanly produced products, clean steel, clean products made of that steel, and so on. Um, key policies include um, financial policies, such as um, financial incentives, equipment, uh, rebates on clean equipment, and fees on inefficient equipment, or uh, financing policies that help firms upgrade their equipment lines, um, like co-lending or loan guarantees and loan loss reserves, basically tools that make cheaper financing available to industry. There's also standards and green public procurement, energy efficiency standards, which set a minimum efficiency level for equipment, um, emission standards, uh, and then green public procurement is one of my favorites, where the government, which is a major purchaser of steel and cement for its roads and bridges and buildings, uh, can choose to spend some of its budget on cleanly produced materials made through innovative processes and help drive those new manufacturing technologies down their learning curves, making them cheaper and more uh, large scale uh, for everyone. There's also R&D support uh, policies, um, which involve national labs and funding and uh, science, technology, math education, uh, labeling and disclosure, circular economy support. Um, and lastly, the book has an entire chapter devoted to equity and human development, 
which is about how to shape the policies in a way that ensure that the transition to clean industry um, benefits countries and people worldwide and doesn't leave any communities behind. That's really important and um, really interesting. And thank you for giving us such a quick rundown. Uh, I'm sorry we don't have time to go into as much depth as I know you would like and I would like and probably our listeners would like, but that's why there's a whole book. Um, so the book is called Zero Carbon Industry. Uh, folks can can check it out at the website that Jeff mentioned. Um, but let's close our conversation out with the same question we ask all our guests, which is to recommend something uh, that you've read or watched or heard that you think is really great uh, and that you'd recommend to our listeners. So uh, Jeff, what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Absolutely. So I'm going to recommend, actually, a board game called Daybreak. It's a, a cooperative board game about solving uh, climate change. Um, it's by Matt Leacock and Matteo Menapace. Matt Leacock was the designer of Pandemic, a well-known earlier uh, cooperative board game about stopping a pandemic. But Daybreak is actually um, fascinating. It has... Um, technologies that you would be familiar with, even ones we discussed today, like heat pumps. Um, and it involves working together across different countries, different parts of the world, uh, to solve this problem together. So it helps highlight the challenge and shows some of the interactions between the need to meet energy demand while also transitioning to clean industry and clean electricity. Um, and it's just a great experience. It's just, it's fun. It's informative. Every card even has a QR code on it that takes you to a website where you learn more about that particular technology or that particular policy option. Um, they have a uh, website about it, daybreakgame.org. Uh, fun thing to check out. Yeah, that sounds really fun. That sounds like the sort of thing we should have in the RFF uh, lunchroom um, and play at happy hours and stuff like that. Well, um, one more time, Jeff Rissman from Energy Innovation, thanks so much for writing this really fascinating book. Thank you for coming onto the show and sharing it with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to share my book, Zero Carbon Industry, uh, with your listeners. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.